Midlands Today on Midlands 183 with O'Brien's Mullingar. It's official Westmeath. No county loves Renault more. P.O.Brien.ie When people in the Midlands want to talk, they talk to Will Faulkner. Well, good morning and happy Friday. And you know what? It is a happy Friday because there is no mention of the C word today. And if you hear it, I have to put money in the swear jar right in front of me for Heroes Aid. And why not do it at home or in the office or on the factory floor, wherever you are today? Just ban the C word. And you know the C word, the C word that's been with us for the last two years, not the other one. Anyway, that should be banned always. So... Make a donation at heroesaid.ie or you'll find the link on the Midlands 103 Facebook page. Also today, Golfgate is thankfully a word you won't be hearing of again. But do you agree with the outcome of the court case? Well, you'll hear what happened in around 15 minutes. Also, um, we will be looking at the cost of living, which has spiralled over the last two years because of Brexit and because of something that we can't talk about today. But there's discussion in government circles about certain increases, whether it is in the electricity credit next month or in the amount of money your boss can give you tax free as a bonus and some other options under conversation at around 10 o'clock this morning. Plus, Francis Black will be here. Our Friday panel will take you through stories you may have missed over the last seven days. And we're going to have a bit of fun without the C word. So, let's get busy. What is on the front pages? The main story on the Irish Times is about the resignation of the Northern Ireland First Minister, Paul Given. I suppose to no real surprise yesterday because... The positioning was taking place for a while. The DUP faces into an election in May or possibly sooner, given the events of the last 48 hours. And when Edwin Poots, their agriculture minister, said on Wednesday that he would be suspending any customs checks and any uh, protocols associated with uh, the Northern Ireland and British withdrawal agreement, the writing was kind of on the wall. Something was about to happen, and it did yesterday afternoon when Paul Given announced his resignation. And that means that by default, Michelle O'Neill of Sinn Féin is no longer the Deputy First Minister as well. In the Irish Daily Star, rather sobering image on the front page. Inches from death, it says. Two cars plough into family's garden as child looks on. And do you remember the ad some years ago, a road safety commercial where a child was out playing in the garden, kicking the ball, and a car just burst over the wall and flattened the poor boy, and his father ran ran out in in the most agonising of uh, grief-stricken ways. And what you see here is nearly a real-life version of that, but thankfully and mercifully without the tragedy. And it happened in Finglas in Dublin, And whatever triggered it, within two seconds, two cars had ploughed into the front wall of this house. Anyway, a very, very lucky escape for all concerned there. 
The cost of living is on the front of the Irish Independent and it says healthcare and motor tax cuts are on the table. And you have some within the coalition who are very anxious to give back and to try and ease the pressures, but there are others who are nervous and, well, you've always had fiscal conservatives in government anyway. So a tug of war is going on, but we'll be talking after 10 with Junior Finance Minister Sean Fleming about what realistically you can expect. And then pictured on the front page, Vicky Phelan. Vicky's legacy is to stand up for your rights. If she was choosing how to be remembered, it would be to encourage particularly women to stand up for themselves when it comes to the right for proper health care. And she's got a lovely smile there on the front pages and was receiving yesterday the freedom of Limerick City. She's a Kilkenny woman originally, but she's been living in Limerick for quite some time. Now, what is inside the papers that may be of interest to you? Oh, actually, did you watch the debate on primetime between the current housing minister, Dara O'Brien, and the aspiring housing minister, Sinn Féin's Ono Brin? I missed it, but the Irish Independent calls it in favour of O'Brien. It feels the sitting minister was able to in some cases shout down but certainly railroad his, uh, I suppose opponent um, and it comments that Ono Brin didn't appear as prepared as he usually would and wasn't as comfortable so it gives the first head-to-head debate which many have waited for a very long time to see it gives it in favour of Darrow O'Brien now, maybe that's just the opinion of this writer in the Irish Independent you might disagree And if so, tell me, who won? The many ways alcohol affects your sleep, no matter your age or your gender. So, if you have a glass of wine just before going to bed, maybe to calm the nerves, quieten the mind, or you have something stronger, maybe. Well, an article in today's Irish Times will certainly make you think twice, because it looks at all of the different physiological reactions For instance, in the brain, alcohol acts on gamma-aminobutric acid. So that's a neurotransmitter that inhibits impulses between your nerve cells, and that's what calms you. And it suppresses rapid eye movement, and that's where it becomes troublesome for sleep. So in the first half of the night, after a drink, and you'll be drowsy and you'll hit the hay you will sleep like a baby. But you won't have deep sleep. And then in the second half of the night, it says when the alcohol is metabolised in your system, it activates you. So you have more disturbed sleep as morning breaks. And therefore you wake up feeling not so great after all. And we're not talking about after a heavy night's drinking because, you know... A hangover is part and parcel, and you sign up for that if you're going for a big night out. But just the one or two before bed, even that can lead to worse sleep than maybe you intend. Uh, Everything in moderation, including moderation. That's my philosophy. Now, the Eurovision is going to take centre stage tonight on the Late Late Show because for the first time in years, we're going to have a Eurosong competition. 
The last time we did this was 2015. And at that time, Molly Sterling was picked to represent Ireland and she didn't make it past the semis. And then they decided, well, we'll get in a panel of experts from now on and we shall fare much better. Except we didn't. Ireland has failed to qualify for five of the last six Eurovision finals. So, tonight there shall be six acts, including Patrick O'Sullivan singing One Night, One Kiss, One Promise, which I'm told is very res uh, similar to U2. It's got that kind of vibe. Janet Grogan, her big ballad is called Ashes of Yesterday, and Brendan Murray will be on the piano singing Real Love. Uh, there's Miles Graham. He's got an upbeat pop number. And Rachel Good, who is a classically trained soprano, will hit the high notes. And finally then, Brooke Scullion. She'll be going back to the 80s with a song called That's Rich. It has a real 1980s vibe. Well, at least they have a nice mix. So, depending on your taste, you might favour the soprano or you might favour the pop song. Or if you're an 80s child, well, you've got some... Something for everybody, I suppose. We'll see which one comes through. And it's always that case, isn't it? Eurovision, oh, we move. We won't win, don't care. What are you talking about? And yet every year we get wound up when Ireland doesn't get through, which proves we do care at some level, despite ourselves. Rihanna is being credited as the new defining celebrity pregnancy photo shoot. I didn't even know she was pregnant. And it says here her other half is ASAP Rocky. Oh, God, Faulkner, you've turned into that person you always hated in your 20s. Very, very uncool. Is that how you pronounce it, guys? Is it ASAP Rocky, ASAP Rocky? Anyway, Rihanna's pregnant, and she's taken a picture for Vogue magazine... And the uh, pictures also shared on Instagram and sold to various media outlets. See her in a long pink puffer coat, jewel gold button. Blah, 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 blah. If you want to see her, she's in many of the newspapers today. And finally, special mention for a lady. I should have done this the other day, but it was shared on the Garda Siakana Leash Offaly Facebook page yesterday. Maureen Delaney in Mount Melick. Was she in trouble because there was a Gartha at her window? Sergeant Mick O'Connell from Mount Melick, why was he calling to Mrs Delaney? Well, she turned 100 recently and you saw him with a nice bottle of bubbly and a big sign saying Happy 100. That's great to see the Gorthy being out in the community for the right reasons too. And hello, Mrs Delaney. Hope you had a great, great day. Bernie's having her say, and she's not happy. She says, here we go again with Golfgate. No accountability. Recalling that at a time that many had lost family members and could only have ten in a church, it seems there really is a different rule for politicians and high society, and it's about time that people stood up and be counted instead of accepting that sort of behaviour. Well... You will hear in a few minutes' time the evidence given in court and the argument that the judge accepted and why. And she acknowledges it may not be popular in the court of public opinion, but 
It's right in the court of law. Okay. By the way, if you get involved on that or indeed any other topic today, except don't say the C word, we will give you caller of the day tickets to see Damien Dempsey in concert. Compliments of Specsavers in Tullamore. You'll find them on Patrick Street. They have a new selection of Liberty London frames in stock. They've also got hearing aids. Yes, Specsavers do hearing aids and audiology now. So, 083 30 10 103. Send me a text or a WhatsApp or a date of voice note. Now, still on the agenda this morning. Ways in which the government might reduce the cost of living. Some of the options. Reducing motor tax. Increasing the electricity credit next month and some other options on the menu which we shall talk about in around half an hour now Golfgate you will not be hearing about this for very much longer because the trial yesterday came to a conclusion stemming back to events in August of 2020 at the Oireachtas Golf Society gathering in Clifton in Galway with the rather uh, dubious challenge of having to describe this story without saying the C word, let's say good morning to Frank Rainey, our course correspondent. Good morning, Frank. Good morning, Will. This is going to be a tricky one, given the facts of the case, but I'll do, I'll do my very best. All right. Remind us, as if we need reminding, of what happened. Well, this goes back to um, August of 2020, specifically August 19th, 2020, at the time, the country was in a level three lockdown. And one of the restrictions that were in place in relation to indoor events was that no more than 50 people could attend an indoor event. On that date, August 19th, 2020, we heard that the Oireachtas Golf Society held a dinner in the Clifton Station House Hotel in Connemara. This was after a two-day golfing event in Ballycanneely. Um, and this was to mark the 50th anniversary of the Golf Society. And it was also in honour of one of its late founding members, a former politician called Mark Killaday. Um, we heard that 81 people attended that. 81 is clearly more than 50. And that's why independent TD Noel Grealish, who was captain of the Golf Society at the time, former Fianna Fáil Senator Donny Cassidy, who was president of the Society at the time, the hotel's owner, a man called John Sweeney, and his son, who is the general manager at the hotel, James Sweeney. That's why they found themselves before Judge Mary Fahey at Galway District Court, because they were accused of organising events that it was in contravention of a lockdown regulation that was in place at the time. Now, they argued, and I think it's fair to say at this point, that they successfully argued that the fact that there was a large partition wall dividing this function room where the dinner took place on that evening, the fact that it was constructed in such a way that it was from floor to ceiling, and despite the fact that there was a small gap opened up to allow people to go up and collect prizes uh, throughout the dinner, I think two people collected prizes, there were some speeches, that despite all that, what that constituted essentially was multiple gatherings, two very distinct and separate parties, which was allowed under the regulations, uh, under the guidelines at the time, where hotels were allowed to host um, multiple gatherings. So there was no more than 50 on either side of this partition. And it seems that is how Judge Mary Fahey arrived at her decision yesterday to dismiss the charges because she agreed with the defence that these were two very distinct and separate things. It wasn't one event in one room 
um, as the prosecuting barrister Owen Cole argued before the judge ruled against him yesterday. So I suppose this is something that um, we've been talking an awful lot about uh, over the course of 18 months or so, but it came to a very swift conclusion yesterday. I think everybody was taken by surprise when the judge eventually ruled because we were expecting it to spill into a fourth and final day, but that didn't happen as it transpired. Well, indeed, she was very quick reaching her decision and uh, quite pointed in her comments as well. What did she say when uh, dismissing the cases? Well, so what happened was the prosecution rested its case yesterday uh, and then we learned that the defence wasn't going into evidence. So I suppose we would have been asking ourselves on the press bench whether or not the likes of Noel Grealish and Donny Cassidy were going to take the stand to give evidence. Um, and we learned immediately after the prosecution rested its case that that wouldn't happen. Um, they're under no obligation to do so in any sort of criminal prosecution, as you well know, well, it's up to the other side to prove its case uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. But what we heard then was that not only were the defence not going to go into evidence, they were going to bring applications to essentially argue that their clients had no case to answer. Um, Michael McDougall, himself a senator, and a former attorney general was representing Noel Grealish. And he brought an application on behalf of his client um, to essentially say Mr. Grealish was not the organiser of this event. Yes, he was the captain of the Golf Society at the time. Yes, he organised the outdoor golf outing uh, the day before. That was the captain's prize. But as he had claimed throughout the hearing, um, he had nothing to do with the president's event the following day. And it was the president's dinner on that evening that was the subject of these uh, proceedings. Um, so there was a bit of toing and froing. The prosecuting barrister described this notion that, you know, by throwing up a partition between this function room um, that you were essentially creating two separate gatherings, he described that as a very fanciful concept. He said this was one event, one dinner, hosted at the same hotel, you know, in a room with what he described as an ineffective partition when it comes uh, to law. The judge disagreed with him. Um, you know, she said there was absolutely no evidence that Noel Grealish was one of the organisers. Yes, he had attended, but she felt there was no evidence to show that he was one of the organisers. Uh, she highlighted the, I suppose, seriousness of the situation he found himself in. This is a criminal prosecution, she said, and I have a reasonable doubt. And where there's a reasonable doubt in a criminal case, the accused person has to be given the benefit of the doubt. And she did reference something that the lead investigator said under cross-examination yesterday. This is a man called Inspector Peter Conlon, and he was grilled under cross-examination yesterday. And one of the things that he said, and the judge mentioned in her closing remarks yesterday, was that there was no real connection to say that Noel Grealish was the organiser of the dinner. So that was case closed against him. Uh, but then, you know, and, it, and again, you know, everyone seemed to be taken by surprise. This all happened in, you know, the matter, a matter of a few minutes. She dismissed the charges against the three other accused men as well. She said there was a huge body of evidence in this case which shows that, yes, this was one organisation uh, that organised uh, this dinner. But she said there were two very distinct areas in what she described as a very large hotel that could have accommodated 200 people pre-pandemic. As she said, the regulations allowed 50 in any, in any function. There were more than 50 people there. 81 people attended, as I said, but she said that was in two distinct areas. Um, she was very impressed by some of the witnesses that gave evidence. She name-checked Seamus Wolfe, who at the time had just stepped down again from his role as uh, Attorney General. He is now a Supreme Court judge and would have come under an awful lot of fire as well, as I'm sure you and your listeners are aware, um, to step down from his role 
as a Supreme Court judge. Uh, he hung tight. He is still on the bench. He is hearing cases as we speak. And he, too, seems to have been vindicated by this um, decision yesterday. She said that his evidence was most impressive. Uh, Jerry Bottomer also gave evidence. She was impressed by his evidence. She said these are very responsible people who wouldn't have attended an event if they didn't think it was going to be compliant. And she said that she had no doubt that the organisers, in conjunction with the proprietors of the hotel, did everything to comply with the regulations and the guidelines. They did comply, she said. She said this is the decision of a court of law. And she said that the court of public opinion mightn't agree with her, but it's a court of law. Um, she said very good people lost very good positions and contracts. And that was her final remark. But just before she left the courtroom, she did clarify in relation to that that she wants to make it clear that, that she hadn't made her decision based on that. That was just an observation before she left court. Mm. Just one footnote along the way, uh, particularly as relates to Donny Cassidy, there was a back and forth between his senior counsel and a member of Ungartha Siakona about when he had been informed and how he had learned of the prosecution and even indeed when he received the summons. Yeah, so the the, the inspector um, was asked about uh, a leak to the media. Um, it seems that the media was aware that summonses were being issued and the prosecutions were being brought before the four accused became aware of that. And that was something that was put to Inspector Condon yesterday. And he was asked if he was the one that leaked that information to the media. This was in February of 2021, if memory serves me correct. And the inspector denied leaking it. Um, he said it certainly wasn't him. Um, and he said that all of the accused men would have received phone calls at precisely the exact same time to avoid any sort of lag between any of them, to tell them that there was going to be a prosecution and they would be summoned in due course. So while they may not have received the summons in the post in due course, by the time that it featured in the newspapers um, and on radio and television and elsewhere, um, he said that he was very confident that they did make a very conscious effort to make sure that Donny Cassidy, Noel Grealish, John and James Sweeney were aware by phone call that this was happening. All right. I appreciate your time and well done on not saying the C word, especially on this story. Frank Graney, our course correspondent. Thank you. Thanks, Will. Good morning to you. Hello to all the crew in Eurozone in Port Arlington. Yes, you. How are you doing today? Thanks for listening to Midlands 103. And I hope you're taking part in Ban the C word. Niall Brady in Clombologue, I'm laughing at your message. Will, my wife and I are having a debate on how to pronounce... <laughs> a certain word. Can you please put us out of your misery? Uh, try Google Translate and see how that goes. Nile. Nice one. I nearly fell for it for a moment, actually. Um, we'll come back to that in just a second. Some comments on Golfgate, and we'll leave it there. Teresa, you didn't expect any other possible outcome from the court hearing. And let's not forget judges are appointed by the established parties of the last 100 years. I know that the judge would refuse that had anything to do with it, but I see where you're going, Teresa. On text, Will, how many miles were the rest of us restricted from home at the time? We had to stay within our five-kilometre radius. That's from Michael Rabbit in Castletown Gagan. I 
don't think the travel restriction was in place at the time, but there certainly were indoor limits for different events, some for funerals, some for weddings, other indoor gatherings, and it was a very complicated set of restrictions at that time. And one other message from Martin Rattigan in Moat, having a giggle at the idea of a partition between the different areas of the function room. And he says, it's a bit like having a smoking ban, putting up a partition and pretending the smoke will not cross that partition. Only in Ireland would this be allowed to happen, he says. Now, why have we banned the C word on Midlands 103 today? Well, because you've heard a steady diet of that stuff over the last two years and it is two years at this stage and it is not alone a word we are sick of hearing but it also gives us a chance to brighten the mood move on with things and raise money for a great cause at the same time that cause being Heroes Aid and I want you to meet its CEO Michal Gannon Michal, good morning Good morning, Will Thank you for having me on and for Midland uh, 103 hosting this fundraising for Heroes Aid. Uh, I would also like to say good morning to all of your listeners. They sound like a lively bunch. They are indeed. And I wish we had this conversation <coughs> yesterday because it would have been easier to talk about the last two years and to preview <laughs> what uh, what is, is, is happening. But anyway. Um, yeah, it's a little bit like that epi- classic episode from 40 Towers about John Lynch and the war. Y- yes, well, you know, tell us how you have been helping frontline workers through the war. Yeah, well, I suppose the, the starting point is that Heroes Aid was, uh, was set up by frontline healthcare workers to support their colleagues, I suppose, after a decade of well-documented difficulties in the sector. So, um, it, like in the early days of the pandemic, Heroes Aid protected colleagues by acquiring and uh, distributing PPE to something like over 1,500 locations nationwide. And if you remember back, if you can cast your mind back then, uh, that was a stopgap solution to a, sor- to a larger sourcing issue. Um, now, at the time, um, there, there was a lot of, I suppose, uh, great support uh, available there, and there was a lot of people talking about the, pa- the pandemic. Uh, and I, in fact, I heard you talking about Vicky Phelan earlier this morning in your paper review. Mm. Uh, and as a Heroes Aid patient advocate, she was one of our earliest supporters. And in fact, her generous contribution helped us enormously. So we wish her well, and we con- congratulate her on getting freedom, freedom of liberty. Here, here. But, but right now, <clears throat> the challenges that are facing frontline healthcare workers, they will not end when the pandemic is under control. That's, that's one of the key things. And many staff have articulated the need uh, to us for impartial and independent support to help them, I suppose, cope with the stresses of the pandemic and beyond. Um, the, there was some really good uh, research that came out, and it came out from the, 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 one of the organisations that represent the, the, the nurses and midwives, a great organisation called the IMMO. Um, and they had, it was really, really interesting and sad in some respects, that 68% of the, 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 of, of the people surveyed considered leaving the profession. 68%, that's, you know, that's over two-thirds of people considered leaving the profession, with 25% of those very likely to leave within 12 months. Um, 
Now that, you know, that for me, that that's a really shocking statistic. And we put that against the background of the difficulties in being able to retain and, uh, and to, I suppose, hire uh, frontline healthcare workers. It means that if this isn't sort of controlled and if this isn't looked after and supported uh, in the short term, then in the longer term, us, our kids, everybody, we're going to have a bigger problem with, 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 with uh, I suppose, sourcing frontline healthcare workers. And that's one of the things that Heroes Aid wants to do. We want to be there to support them. Problems like that will only be compounded by the conversation oh, we're going to have after the news, which is about inflation yeah. and the cost of living. And yeah. again, it makes yeah. that money left at the end of the day all the smaller. Talk to us, it though, does. about your own funding. How do you keep the lights on? Well, uh, we, were, we were very fortunate in that in the earlier part of, uh, of last year, we were... Um, we got a lot of uh, generous support from people coming through our website. We got, uh, we were on the Late Late Show. We got some really good funding coming through there. We had some corporate sponsorship, uh, but we are out looking for funding. And in fact, uh, we will be going to a number of corporates, uh, starting with with one in the west of Ireland. I can't name them yet. Uh, at the end of next week, uh, with a plan. Uh, and in fact, we have a really, we have this really great idea. We we put it into practice. Uh, last year uh, with two groups of people uh, that were taken out into um, uh, taken out into an area it was Kylemore Abbey in Connemara I I think some of your listeners will be familiar with it and uh, what what we did was over a period of of, uh, three days and two nights they, they connected in a gentle process with their peers who shared a similar pandemic experience now the participants at the time were randomly selected from frontline healthcare workers who are nominated by the community. Uh, they were physically, mentally and emotionally exhausted because they had been on the front line for many months without respite. Now the feedback from the participants was very, very positive and a strong recommendation is that we, uh, that this type, I suppose, of wellbeing intervention would be of benefit to their colleagues in going forward. So we've put together a programme uh, for this, we call it Heroes Retreat. Uh, I'm hoping that when we that we will get the funding from corporates. So if there's any corporates listening here, uh, I would be absolutely delighted to get the support from from you. Um, we have a template now for our retreat, and our objective is to put uh, as many frontline healthcare workers through this support structure as we possibly can. Uh, in, in the coming year, and that it becomes part of, I suppose, the, the support structure that becomes available to them in the future. So th- that's one of the things that we're doing, but we're also looking for support and funding for it. Now, we will, me, in our own way, hopefully, individually today, <laughs> make our contribution. And it's absolutely. certainly far more meaningful than you know, a round of applause for frontline workers. That was yes. fine at the time, but you that's deserve much more. Yeah. Michal, yeah. I, I have to break for the 10 o'clock news, heroesaid.ie, and we will talk again. Absolutely, well, any time. And listen, thank you so, so much. I really appreciate this opportunity, and I hope everybody listening has a good weekend. You too. Michal Gannon, CEO of Heroes Aid. Good morning. Some comments on the Golfgate trial. Will, don't you find it hypocritical that we blast Boris Johnson for parties almost daily? And when it happens here, well, it's swept under the carpet. What is good for we is not good for ye. Another caller says, well, are you surprised? 
It was a waste of taxpayers' money. And it really, really would put you off voting for certain politicians if they cannot stick to the spirit of the rules. That point is made by Rachel as well on Facebook. She says, All people who were looking to get married at around that time and were restricted on numbers in the room. Lads, you missed a trick. You should have just asked the hotel to erect partitions and hey presto, you could double your numbers. It would have been legal. Absolutely legal. But it wasn't in the spirit of what we were all doing at the time. Now, still to come today, you find out the six acts competing to represent you at the Eurovision this year. A new life-saving training course is coming to Leash and Offaly. Will you be signing up? And Frances Black drops by ahead of her big concert here in the Midlands. Yes, how long is it since we talked about concerts? Thank heavens we can do this again. Caller of the day wins tickets to see Damien Dempsey perform in Tullamore later this month. Compliments of Specsavers. And you'll find them on Patrick Street in Tullamore, specsavers.com, and they're giving free hearing tests for adults and children aged four and above. You can also get your hearing aids through PRSI contributions as well. Now... Let's talk about the cost of living, which is the issue that isn't going away and, if anything, is becoming more and more acute. Uh, one measure the government promised prior to Christmas was a fuel credit, an electricity credit, which would be applied to your bill in March, initially valued at €100, Euro, plus the VAT, don't forget. Now there's consideration being given to increasing that. Also, according to today's Irish Independent, cuts to health care costs and motor tax are on the table. But these are just options and no decisions have been made yet. Let's see what the mood in government is. Sean Fleming is a junior finance minister. He's also Fianna Fáil TD in Leash Offaly. Deputy Fleming or Minister Fleming, good morning. Good morning, Will. So what sort of options are most practical and affordable in your view? OK, well, the first thing is, as you rightly pointed out, the decisions haven't been made. They'll be made by the government in just about a week's time has been examined closely by Minister Michael McGrath, Minister Pascal Donoghue. So we don't have any specific information at this stage. But what I will say is I think everybody knows right across, it's actually quite like the pandemic. Inflation is at the highest level in Europe. Every country in Europe for, last 20, for over 20 years. And in America, they have the worst inflation in 40 years. It's actually sweeping across the entire Western world, actually like the pandemic. So Ireland is one of the countries caught up on this as well. However, we have to look after our citizens here in Ireland. And the first initiative we mentioned there at Christmas was the electricity bill, the €113. Euro. That's going through the door as we speak. So people will get that credit on their electricity bill um, in March, so if you get the bill for March, and it's normally 200 euro to be 100 um, already paid um, through this subsidy by the government, and the bill then the person will only have to pay will be 100 euro. So that's good. There are calls, and it's been examined, but I can't give any um, indication of where the debate will land about maybe increasing that. But then there's other costs that people have to pay, and I think the, the single biggest one we all see. You know, even the nearest fill station to me was 164 euro for diesel last night, and that's nearly as good as it gets anywhere in the Midlands. So uh, diesel has gone up a lot, and that's because um, the price of gas has gone up, you know, very very heavily across the world, and that's to an extent beyond their control. So what the government wants to do is, if inflation is high for the course of this year, um, 
we want to do some measures to take the edge off that and mitigate that. Norma Foley is already suggesting issues in relation to um, um, the issue of college fees could be reduced, and Simon Harris is saying that third level fees, the leaving certificate fee that families could have to pay you well over 100 euro and the junior cert fees are over 100 euro, they could be t- um, eliminated as well. And then there's other issues um, that can be looked at, you know, the fuel allowance, um, the, cost, uh, um, the cost of that and the benefit of that for everybody on social protection is well over 800 euro per annum that they're getting already. Maybe that can be extended, you know, for another period of time. And then there's issues then that the government can look at. The issue is public transport to make it more affordable. Because, you know, here in the Midlands, we're commuter towns. The cost of going up and down to Dublin um, is very expensive on the train. But if you get your, your annual commuter ticket, you get it at a very much reduced rate. But now with people paying the full rate for the annual commuter ticket, they might be only travelling up and down half the time and if they're working from home. Yes, so but issues like that. if we can come back perhaps to the fuel, because I think that yeah. will filter down into the cost of Everything. many things, because goods in supermarkets get on the shelf only because they've arrived by lorry, uh, which burns fuel. Uh, fuel and energy influence so many prices. So there was a carbon tax increase this year, for instance, the third in a series of ten. Might that have been a mistake? Um, there, there will some people say that, and the, the second half of that equation that people need to know about but doesn't get repeated when this is mentioned on there is what happened the carbon tax increase that we got? We gave it out in the fuel allowance, uh, the older people, people on social protection, people on disability, to heat their homes. And I've already mentioned that's over €800 Euro per annum for everybody who's in receipt of it. So we used the carbon tax that most, a lot of the increases was to look after people who were going to have increased fuel costs. And we've extended the period of the year um, covered by it. We've extended the weekly payment. So that's where a lot of that went. And the, uh, the main rest of it is going to help people retrofit their houses. There are people getting houses uh, retrofitted under the SES Sustainable Energy Ireland scheme. And that's been funded by the carbon levy. So good things are happening through the carbon levy. And we can, some people might say, um, abolish it. But I wouldn't agree with abolishing a taxation that helps people keep their homes warm and improve uh, the retrofit um, and do retrofitting on their own houses. So uh, it's a tax that we don't like paying, but it's put to exceptionally good use. Yes, but there's more than one way to skin a cat. That obviously applies. And the VAT receipts... Uh, for December were very strong. Christmas was a, a good uh, time for many retailers in particular. Would there be scope to reduce the 23% rate, perhaps? Um, what can happen is a, a VAT rate can be reduced maybe from 23% to 13.5%, and that would be a very significant uh, cost saving. The main thing we would want to ensure any savings like that get passed on uh, to the people of Ireland. And that's why the government is looking at costs that the government controls directly, because there's no point in the government reducing that and the transport companies who deliver the oil and the four courts and the oil companies pocketing some of the reduction and not passing it all. So that's one of the issues that has to happen, that where the government takes an initiative that the middleman in between doesn't hold on to that for their own cost and not pass it on. No good the government reducing VAT unless people see the full value of that production when they, they go to pay for the fuel. And that's really, that's the most difficult part of this debate, actually. The other side of that coin is 
that is what's called a regressive tax insofar as you pay 23% if you're on minimum wage, you pay 23% if you're a millionaire. And therefore, arguments are sometimes made about um, maybe, for instance, giving uh, not a universal credit, but a, a targeted credit. Uh, when it comes next month and we look at our ESB bills or our Electric Ireland bills or energy bills, whatever company you're with. That's exactly what we're doing. We're giving a, a target in relation to fuel costs. And, you know, you can have the argument then that every... So the, how you would follow through the logic of what you say, and that's the simple thing that people do say, why should somebody who doesn't need this €100 Euro get it? Well, if we have to do a means test on every person, the 2.1 million people who have an electricity account, um, to see who should get it above uh, a certain level or below a certain level, we will spend from here to next Christmas doing that means test. So it's far easier. Get the money to the people quickly. That's the, that's the main motto. And I would say, and as voluntarily, if somebody feels they don't need it or don't deserve it, they can give it to a charity who will give it to some needy cause. And there's nothing stopping people doing that either. So how you mentioned this will hopefully uh, be decided in the next few days. When would you expect the announcement? Tuesday week. Um, the, the Cabinet Subcommittee will be meeting this coming week to work through the details of that to go to the Cabinet on Tuesday week. That's the timetable. I understand it's happening because we need to do it soon. Um, um, but it's not, an, it's not going to be an entire new minimum or a new budget, let's be clear. We had a budget in October. Some of the measures we've just talked about um, um, all came in um, this year. Social welfare increase came in four weeks ago. The fuel allowance increase came in. The extension of the fuel. Some of these things have actually just happened as a result of the last budget. We're not going to write a brand new budget from scratch four months on, but we want to pick out particular things that can be done quickly. And that's really what's going on, a little bit like the, 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 the electricity uh, refund that's coming at the moment. Just a quick one, Minister. Uh, was there any change in the household benefits package? A listener says they are not getting as much of a credit towards their electricity costs as they used to. Maybe that's an error. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, the answer is I'm not sure, but that's something I will specifically follow up. What I have to say, and this is actually the most important message I'm going to deliver here in this thing today, is the government can do so much in reducing costs. Everybody can ring up and change your supplier. If you change your electricity supplier, if you're on town gas in some of the towns in the Midlands are, um, if you're on broadband, if you're on uh, TV package, if you're on a phone package, you will save money by shopping around. And people have to make the call. And it's important people can actually save hundreds every year by switching. And the same happens to car insurance, which I deal with, and home insurance. People who switch save money. And the government doesn't have to do that. So people can do something themselves, and the government can help also. But people have an opportunity of saving hundreds of euros every year if they change those suppliers. And that's, I would encourage people today to switch, switch, and switch again. Sean Fleming, Minister of State at the Department of Finance, thank you for taking our call. Thank you. He's also a Fianna Fáil TD in Leash Offaly. So, what is the number one idea that you would like to see the government consider when it comes to reducing your cost of living? I was waiting for this one. Well, what about we just don't give any further pay rises to politicians and senior civil servants? It seems there's no end to them. And then maybe throw a few scraps to the peasants. 
James in Portlaoise says, Will, in all fairness, we, the public, saw inflation coming long before the last budget. But why did they ignore the signs? And by the time they get around to doing anything, we'll be up to our eyes in debt. So, he's also not happy with the €5 euro increase in social welfare rates, feels it needs to be more. Um, Sean you would have a reduction in the nursing home burden on the house you live in. Yours is valued at €336 per week. That's a reference to Fair Deal, by the way, which is a government support scheme towards nursing home costs. They look at how much you have in the bank, if you have any shares, what your assets are, and then the family home. And I think, is it 3.5%? And if that's in a couple situation, if it's a single application, it's 7% of the family home valued for three years. It's quite steep indeed. And, Will, could you please tell that TD that if we don't scrap the carbon tax, we could scrap the government at election time. It is their policies that are driving people towards the breadline with tax after tax after tax. 60 euro on every 100 spent on fuel. And then they're making a big fuss about giving us back 100 quid. That's a message on WhatsApp on 083 30 103. Send me yours, powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. Let's get away from that and on to the national conversation that happens always at this time of year and again in May, the Eurovision. And we pretend, many of us, nah, I don't care. And yet we get wound up when Ireland doesn't do well. So we do care at some level, don't you? Now, who will be representing us this year? Well, for the first time since 2015, it's going to come down to a contest. And Mick Lynch is the man who literally wrote the book about the Eurovision. It's called What's Another Year? And Mick is on the phone from Port Leash, or from Mount Melick, rather. How are you, uh, Mick? How are you doing, Will? How's it going? Good, good, good. Uh, speaking of good, Rachel Good is... A classically trained soprano, I'm told, and she's one of those who will be stepping forward on the Late Late Show tonight. Who's catching your eye? Um, if you want, um, yeah, you mentioned Rachel there. Certainly, uh, if for the kind of up-tempo type songs, that would be the one that jumps out with me. I think song five, I'm Loving Me. It's it's one of those, it's written by Swedish songwriters who over the last decade have dominated the pop charts with all 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 those kind of poppy, up-tempo, Euro dance type songs. And um, if you think of stuff like, say, Lorraine Euphoria, who had massive success oh, yeah. in Eurovision, it's that kind of vibe, you know, that's um, what that song is. And that would be a very strong favourite, I would say, tonight. Um, I suppose it, it, there's, as we were saying there's going to be a jury and a public vote and the, you know it depends on if there's young people on the jury they would certainly be aiming for something like this this is the kind of song that would do very well in the charts Janet Grogan is favoured by the bookies apparently yeah um, that's a ballad um, she's well known people would have seen her on the X Factor and um she also sang back and vocals for Nicky Byrne when he was in it about five years, six years ago. And um, it's a ballad. I don't. There's two ballads in it there. Um, I don't think it's the strongest of the ballads. Uh, but yes, look, if again, if the 
Ireland's success in Eurovision has always been ballads and nothing else, as in our, our victories. Mm. So, you know, we tend to, when we send ballads, we tend to do better. That song too, Ashes of Yesterday, is okay. I, If I was offering a preference, song three, Real Love by Brendan Murray, he was in, he represented us about uh, what, five years ago. And um, I think that's a better ballad than Janet Grogan's. But look, the bookies are you really wrong. Yeah, well, maybe it's the recognition factor for Janet. Yeah. Uh, who knows what they're latching on to there. Patrick O'Sullivan, I'm told, has a U2 vibe about him with One Night, One Kiss, One Promise. Yeah, it, it, yeah U2 would be a good uh, synopsis on that one. Um, it didn't blow me away. I find every time we do one of these, the songs at the beginning are forgotten by the time we hear the sixth song, kind of similar to the Eurovision event itself, where the songs one and two and three, you know, never really uh, cut the mustard by the end of it. So I, I'd say maybe his draw position isn't going to help either. Now, it is written by Danny O'Reilly of the Coronas and co-written with Nicky Bourne. So there's strong potential there. But when I listen to it, it wouldn't blow me away. And I, I don't think it'll be in the mix now come the end to the voting. So that leaves who? Uh, there's a couple more. There's song four is Miles Graham. It's it's called Yeah We're Gonna Get Out of It. Um, it's personally I think it's repetitively annoying. Uh, they, they they just keep singing that line, and I was saying to myself, if they get to the semi final, unfortunately they won't be getting out of it. You know, <laughs> so. <laughs> Um, but, uh, Although sometimes repetitive songs stick in your head in a good way absolutely. too. It can be very earworms. subjective. Earworms. Yeah, earworms. Exactly. Uh, yeah, we absolutely. don't talk about Bruno. No, true, yeah. So, ah, look, it, it, it's, um, I, I don't think that'll be in the mix at all. And the last song is called That's Rich from Brooke Scullion. Um a dairy person. And I think that's where the connections will end with the Eurovision um I don't think they'll be replicating Phil Coulter's success or Dana's success in it anyway. I do think it's down to the ones we've touched on, Fred, an up-tempo one, song five, I'm Loving Me, Rachel Good. And as a ballad, I'd be torn between song two, Janet Grogan, song three, Brendan Murray, but I'd probably vie for Brendan Murray in that sense. All right, we'll watch the Late Late with interest tonight, see if your predictions are correct. Mick, always great chatting. Thanks for your time. Okay, well, that's brilliant. Thanks a lot. Mick Lynch wrote the book about Eurovision, What's Another Year? Francis Black and Don't Get Me Wrong. Well, let's say good morning to the lady herself. Francis, how are you? Good morning, Will. How are you? How are you keeping? It's a long time since I heard that song, I can tell. Well, that's, an old, that's from an old album. It's a long time since we heard it live anyway, that's for sure. Yeah, that's for sure. I, I, I actually had forgotten about it. Would you believe that, Will? I'd forgotten about that song. And it's only when you played it this morning that you reminded me that I recorded it many, many years ago. So thanks for that. <laughs> You know we've banned the C word today. Um, I am aware of that. Yes, yes, we're not mentioning the thing over the last two years, but it has kept us, unfortunately, away from live gigs and concerts, and it's a pleasure to be talking to you about something we can look forward to later this month. But how have you been, I suppose, filling the void musically uh, since we were last in this position? It's been tough be honest with you it's been tough um 
as you can imagine, a lot of gigs had been cancelled. Um, you know, you know, because you never knew where you were, if you know what I mean. You didn't know. I mean, one minute it was going to be okay, then the next minute it was back on again, and it, you know, so we we were all over the shop. I like musically. For me, there was a huge gap. Obviously, I've I've been very busy with my other work in Leinster House. You know, I'm I'm and that that really has kept me off the Richter scale busy. But I've really missed gigging, and I cannot wait to get back. And the best part of the gigging part for me is that I'm going to be you know gigging with Mary Coughlin and Sharon Shannon, who I would consider two of my best friends. You know, um, I, I we've been working together for years now, probably maybe 10, 15 years together. We've been doing on and off gigs. You know, we all do our solo stuff, but then we all come together and we really enjoy it. And we do it because we really enjoy it, because it's great fun. It's great crack. There's a wonderful energy just from our perspective. It doesn't feel like work at all, you know, and we have a great laugh, um, the three of us and all the musicians and the sound guys and everything. There's just a great atmosphere. So we're back gigging and we're coming to Tullamore in the 25th of February in the Tullamore Court and really excited about it. That'll be our first gig back in a long, long time together and we're really looking forward to seeing each other as well as, you know, the audience as well. Uh, it's very exciting, actually. Very exciting for us. Any nerves? Any, I suppose, mic rust? You know what? I don't feel nervous when I'm performing with the, with the girls. I call them the girls. If you know, I know that's probably not the political, but I call them, you know, the girls. Um, and we say the three girl gigs, even though we're all, you know, well, certainly myself and Mary are, are two uh, mammos. We're grannies now. But, um, no, I don't with, with them, with that gig. I do if I'm doing my solo gig. Now, I have to say, if I'm doing a solo gig, my nerves are still after, wouldn't you think, Will, after all these years that I would have copped on, but I still get extremely nervous uh, around my own solo gigs for some reason. And um, Isn't it strange probably, how the brain works? Yeah, I, and I probably actually, you know, because of the anxiety I get around, I probably am, am not doing as many solo gigs, to be honest, which because of the anxiety oh. that comes with it. But I, as I say, I love the, doing the gigs with Mary and Sharon. And uh, yeah, I really feel for me it's an outlet. It's I love performing. I love being with the band. I love the crack at the end. You know, we have great fun at the end. We all come on stage together. We do about 15 minutes together. And God only knows what will happen. Mm. You know. But, but yeah. I dare say even... After the initial anxiety of your own solo gigs, once you're up there and you're five minutes in, you're probably enjoying yourself again. I do. And after the gig is over and I love meeting the audience and I love chatting to everybody. And yeah, you're right. It's it's just the lead into it. It, it could last for a week beforehand. <laughs> it's just I know it sounds ridiculous, but it could, you know, the anxiety coming up to the gig going, oh God, you know, uh, and don't ask me where it comes from. I probably should go and talk to somebody about it. It's an awful, it's an awful, it's an awful feeling, you know, um, and, and, and as a result, I probably don't do as many solo gigs as I could. You know, know the feeling. There are many Do occasions you? I've been asked to MC lovely events, and no, it's not worth the. Um... Yeah, so you, <laughs> you you can identify with that anxiety and and the lead up. It's the lead up to it. You know, mm. um, and uh, you know, I remember talking to a very, very well known, um, uh, uh, highly renowned in Ireland uh, singer, um, a man who who said the same thing, and he has actually stopped gigging since. You know, um, and you know, has has kind of more or less retired, um, and yeah, it can really be, uh, it can be really crippling sometimes. You know, it's a terrible thing to say, but I'm sure people can can 
relate with. But I feel so blessed, and I really do feel blessed that I'm able to gig with, with Mary and Sharon and and that we have this unbelievable, great camaraderie. Yeah, and, and it's a safety net for everybody, I suppose. It takes a bit of the pressure off. But, you it know, is. I was even watching Brendan O'Carroll on Tommy Tiernan, and Brendan has performed huge gigs in front of thousands, and he yeah. made a very good point. He used to be a waiter, and how he, I suppose, developed the comedy is he'd entertain tables of four as they were waiting for the food and cracking the yeah. gags and you had to have the timing right. And his case was that it's actually not all that different whether you've got four in front of you or 40,000. It's it's the same routine. And he was able to put it in his mind that way when he first went out on a bigger stage. And yeah. everybody, I suppose, has their tricks in dealing with anxiety, whether it's performing or whether it's in an interview, a job interview, yeah. whatever the setting, uh, even yeah. socially for a party and stuff like that. There are techniques. Yeah, and exactly. And I think you have to push yourself out of your comfort zone. I mean, I haven't not. I mean, like, I'm still doing solo gigs. You know, I kind of pick them, you know, and I only do them periodically. Um, but I still push myself. I won't let it stop me. Mm. You know what I mean? I still push myself out of my comfort zone around it. And I still do it because I won't let it stop me from performing. That's absolutely 100%. You know, I still push myself. I don't do it as much as I probably could, but I still do it for sure. I know I'll be doing some gigs during the summer and I'll be doing some solo gigs at the end of the year. So I look forward to that as well. But, well um, I'm curious, I, but when you first went to the Shannon and had to make speeches in what would be a very alien setting, <laughs> yeah. how nervous well, were you then? Oh, listen, I still get anxious around that. Look, you know, that was really throwing myself. Look, the one thing I would say to you is that when fear comes into my life, I push through it. Or when anxiety, I push through it. I have to. Because I don't want, I certainly don't want to be crippled by it. So for me in the, in the Shannon, definitely I would have had to. And I really feel I threw myself into the deep end. I didn't, I, I'll be honest, when I ran in the election, I didn't think I would get elected. I, I ran for the experience, you know, thinking, well, if I don't get elected this time, then, you know, I'll, I'll go again another time, but I'll, you know, learn and understand it more. But I got elected the first time and I really threw myself into it. And I work, honestly, I'm not saying this but from an egotistical place, but I work really hard and I work really hard at learning and educating myself around certain issues that I'm very passionate about, obviously mental health being one of them. Um, you know, and I'm I'm the chair of the, the mental health uh, committee and then the subcommittee in Leinster House, you know, and I was the one that kind of started that off, got that up and running because I feel mental health obviously is is should be on top priority when it comes to to issues in, 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 in government issues in, in particular. So, you know, I work very hard on those issues. I work very hard on the issues around Palestine and educating myself is key in all of that. Um, and I, 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 I really enjoy it. But yes, you're dead right. My The first year in Leinster House for me, I was, oh my God. But I really wanted it, I think. Mm. And I really wanted to make a difference. And I think that's what drove me. I really thought to myself, I'm going to learn as much as I can in here. And I'm going to really work hard on making a difference in, in people's lives. I'm not going to say, I can't, you know, I'm not going to change the world. But just try and make a difference where you can influence government and influence legislation in a way that can be very beneficial in people's lives.
And that is the moral of the story, that only when you stretch beyond your comfort zone can you grow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And be the change that you want to see in the world. I think those Mm. words were said said by Gandhi. Be the change that you, you know, get involved in the change. You know, like, I, I, as you know, I set up the Rise Foundation, which is a charitable organisation that I'm extremely passionate about. And I suppose that was the... That was the inspiration for me running in the election because I got frustrated at the fact that I didn't feel there was enough services out there for people who had somebody they love with an addiction problem. So I said, I'll go into Leinster House, get an understanding how, you know, how it all works. And really, I'm in there now a good few years and I'm only starting now to get a really good understanding of of what happens in there and how you can make change, you know? Um, and and it's very it's very rewarding, but it's, it's, it can be exhausting, you know, because you're, you're pushing a piece of legislation and you're getting it so far and then it might get blocked and then you have to get back, you know, start again, you know, and try a different way. So it can be difficult, but the one thing I, I will do is I never give up. I never give up. I'm so... There's areas, Will, that I'm so passionate about that I never give up on it. And it's the same with my music. I'll never give up on it ever, you know, because I feel so privileged to be able to get up on stage and sing in front of an an audience. And I appreciate and I'm full of gratitude. So I never give up and I'll always keep going, no matter how many times I get knocked back. That's the one thing about me. And I learned that from my mother. (laughs) Well, in Ireland, we can be very cynical of politicians and and for good reason too yeah did it change the way people related to you and i know you're independent and therefore that's probably a less divisive position to take but Mm -hmm. did anybody treat you differently yeah of course you're going you're putting yourself up there i suppose you know to be criticized but i don't get a huge amount of criticism i come from i suppose a human rights um, point of view, civil engagement. You know, I'm in a group in Leinster House called the Civil Engagement Group with three other, there's four, four of us in that group, independent women, who all come from a human rights-based point of view. So we focus a lot on social justice issues. So, um, you know, and we fight for social justice, I suppose. Um, and I think, like, of course, there, there will be people out there who you know, will be resentful that you're even in there, if you know what I mean. Um, and but and maybe some people wouldn't really understand I suppose, how hard I work. And I don't mean, again, I don't mean to say that from, you know, an egotistical point of view, but I really focus a lot, you know, on all of the committees that I'm on and I work, I work hard. So, you know, they think, oh, you're just in there, you're in the Shannon, you know, what do you do in there? But we do work really hard and we work hard on getting legislation passed, but also influencing and making sure that whatever legislation has come in, that the right amendments go in. Um, um, and also we work with NGOs. We work with, you know, I work with a lot of NGOs from a mental health point of view. Um, and from from my perspective, that's what's really important. Mm. And of course, as you know, as you might, might you may not know, but Palestine is another area, and I, I brought in legislation around Palestine back in 2018, and I'm still working very hard on that. So they're all issues yeah, that you're, I, I'm very you're you're kept busy, about. and you've a lot on your plate. And I, I've no doubt, even when you and Mary Coughlin get together, as you will in the Court Hotel on the 25th. I mean, she's a fairly straight talker. <laughs> Do you have yeah. arguments or debates? Me and Mary are very much on the same on the same wavelength when it comes to uh, a lot of the issues. Um, she, Mary, I love Mary Coughlin. I love Sharon Shannon too. They're very straight talking women, 
absolutely straight talking, no messing, say it how it is. You, you, there's no, you know, there's no small talk around like that. They just say exactly what they feel and exactly. And it's funny how the three of us are all kind of on the same page on a lot of the issues. They would be very supportive of the issues that I work on in Leinster House. You know, we'd be talking, we'd be chit-chatting in the dressing room and we'd be chit-chatting. Mary would always be supportive and Sharon of the issues um, that I was, and they would always, you know, any tweets I put up, they retweeted and, you know, so I'm lucky that I have, we all, we're all on the same page when it comes to the issues that, that um, social justice issues really and human rights based issues and that's really it. Do you know what I mean? Um, so yeah, no, I feel blessed and they're, we said when Mary and Sharon get on really, really well. That's all I can say to you. And you can feel that on stage, you know, because we all love each other and we're together for a long time, working together for a long time, since the early 2000s, actually, which is a long time. Um, and then back oh, in Please the, don't you know, say that's in, a long time. And, and back in the, and back in the, and back again from the Women's Heart era, if you know, back in the early 90s. So, you know, and then we had a break for a while. We all went off and did our own thing. And then we came back in the early 2000s. We went over to Holland and that was our first tour together. I don't know when that was, maybe 2005. Look, so, we're um, going to agree, Francis, it was only yesterday. All only right. yesterday, yes. I know, I know. I'm not sure. I'm looking at 20 year olds now who were born in the early 2000s. Stop, stop. <laughs> I know, I know. Look, uh, everybody's welcome from 9 to oh. 90. And you will be I in the Tullamore Court Hotel, 25th of February. Uh, yeah. You, along with Sharon Shannon and Mary Coughlin. And, and it's, it'll be a good night. It'll be a fun night. It'll be a laugh. You know, with the, you'll definitely have a laugh anyway, for sure, especially with Mary. But she's powerhouse on stage and one of the finest singers in Ireland and then of course you have the legend the legend that is Sharon Shannon so look it'll be a great night and you will really enjoy it and I'd highly recommend it for, for a good night of fun and laugh and we get it all singing and we might even get people up dancing if, if, if it's all possible Looking forward to it Francis thank you very much for your time Thanks Will all the best Francis Black How's the swear jar at home or in work wherever you may be. We have banned the C word, not the really bad C word, but the C word that, well, two years ago we never even heard of. And we've heard little else since. And thankfully, it looks like it's in the rear view mirror. So if you happen to utter it in conversation today, do drop uh, uh, some donation, if you can, to heroesaid.ie. They support frontline healthcare workers, have done so for many years, and please God will continue to do so into the future. And it's worth more to them than a round of applause, that is for sure. So, let's get involved with the Friday panel. One of them will probably make a mistake and drop that C-bomb. On the panel today, we have a lady who runs a glamping site, a top solicitor, and a pharmacy and beauty specialist. And we have a busy week in which the price of a stamp rose to €1.25. Fines for illegal parking doubled. And let's not forget Golfgate. Thankfully, we can very soon forget Golfgate. Now, they say a picture is worth a thousand words, but maybe not if the story is powerful enough. When Cathy McCarthy was growing up in Deer Park in Athlone, She never imagined she would one day be the author of three books who had raised thousands of euro for a great cause. Our Stories Through Song is an inspiring collection of experiences, some positive and some negative, like that of Mousy, a choir singer 
who says he has lived every single word of Ralph McTell's poignant song about immigration, Streets of London. Cathy has been telling our arts reporter Claire O'Brien more about her project. Absolutely not, no. I was the, um, the shyest person in the class. I was very quiet. Um, I did love English. And um, I just never imagined this would be my journey at this stage of my life. Um, I suppose it all goes back to I had cancer in 2000 and I recovered really well. I had breast cancer. And about after I had my, you know, really when I was going through my treatment, I felt there was little information out there about the ordinary, um, simple things like your eyebrows, your hair, your clothes, little things like that that actually got me through my journey very, very, very important to me to look well and to be the best I could be for my children and for myself. And I wrote this book called Not the Year You Had Planned. And it just it just details it's not just it's not really my it's not a memoir, it's not any kind of a it's not my story. It's more about trying to give people information about to deal with um the hair issues and the different things that you come across every day um, when you're dealing with cancer. And it was just very important. I, I wanted to pass on the information that I had, I had, I had garnered over the couple of years. And um, I did that, and that was my first book. And then my second book came about when I realised that um, when you come out of your treatment and out of cancer, there's a whole new journey to face with trying to get back uh, to some kind of a normal mm. life, whatever that is. And um, I really, really felt very strongly about that and even still do since. And I wrote my second book called Stronger Than Yesterday. And it's a book for anybody. It's not just for cancer. It's for anybody going through adversity. And it's trying to, it's trying to help you to see how you can live every day as best you can. And with, because, you know, a cancer diagnosis or a heart disease or anything to do with any major health issue is really challenging. And people underestimate. People would say to you, oh, you're grand now and you're back to normal and you're great. But they have no idea what's in your head. And I found it took me a long time to, I went to do a few courses on mindfulness and yoga and stuff like that to try mm-hmm. and get myself back into society again, I suppose, really. And I really, and I, yeah, I mean, that's why I wrote the second book. And where and did that become part of, of your life? The, the idea that, you know, I, I've, I've had an experience. I have learned something really important and other people need to know this. Uh, and, and I have to share it with them. Did you have examples of that growing up? Was was something that that, that was no, important in your home? I can't I can't explain it to you about. Um, I remember saying to a friend of mine, I'd love to write a book and get all my tips down. And she said, Why don't you? And I said, Oh, that's ridiculous! I'd never be able to do that. Really? And I remember I was honestly. Oh, I swear, honest to God, Clary, I mean this. I was travelling to um, Enniscorthy one day and I was driving on my own and, you know, the way I turned off the radio and I began to think about the book and I couldn't get the book out of my head. A shape of a book or a sound of a book and I came back and I took out a notebook and I started writing stuff down and I just couldn't believe. I had no idea this was my journey. I genuinely hadn't. I, I just never thought I could do it. And when I look, even to this day, the book, now my first book is about 14 years old it's um, 11, 12, 13 years old and I still look at it and I still think I can't believe I wrote that <laughs> people are actually reading it honestly no I would be very I'm very humble about it all because I just I thought I never would have seen myself being that kind of person who could anyway inspire people or be um, an advocate for stuff like that I wouldn't have been I wouldn't see myself like that as a person 
And, and then you, not only did you write the second book, but you donated the proceeds of it. Tell me about the about the first 50% and then the second 50%, because that second 50% took you on a, a really interesting journey. Um, yeah. So tell me about the first 50% first. Yeah. Well, the first, um, my first book, all the money went to two cancer support centres in Dublin. Sorry, in Iatala and Sligo. And then the second book, I decided I, I'm not going to, I don't really want to give it just to cancer, because it's not just a cancer story or it's not just a story to involve people. I wanted to really use with a bigger audience out there for this second book. And I decided, okay, I need I wanted to give it away as well. So I came across a young man called Jack Havner who had been paralyzed um as a result of a surfing accident and he really intrigued me because he was very similar in age to my own son and I and my son is also called Jack. And something about this young man, really, I just, I, anyway, so I contracted him and he got half the money. And then I, I came across the program, the Waterford, the High Hopes Choir. Sorry, it was Dublin, Cork and Waterford at the time. Um, David Brophy uh, set it up. I'm sure people will remember it back in 2014 in November. Mm. And I just looked at that and I remember thinking, oh my God, they're doing, they're living through adversity. That's what my book is about. And then I set off on a journey to find David Brophy, and I did. And then he said to me, I can't uh, let you talk to any of the people in the choir because they're, they're, um, they're, you know, they're involved with social workers and they're protected yeah. by, pe- by other people because those people are very vulnerable and they're fragile. Anyway, so to make a long story short, uh, my friend in Waterford, we'd lived there for 10 years, contacted the manager of the, um, the Vincent de Paul Hospital in okay. Waterford and he told him what I was doing and he trusted me and I rang him and said look I have no agenda here I just want to be able to give this money away to some charity and I went down and I met them and the rest basically is history <laughs> and he, honestly yeah I had no idea where I was going with that I landed down I spoke to them and I knew if they didn't like me they wouldn't talk to me yeah. but thankfully they liked me and they liked what I was doing and um, came back up anyway and finished my book and they got half the proceeds and I thought I was just going to hand over a cheque. Uh, no, no, it was totally no, different. They no. invited me to different things and it was so interesting and I'm still involved with them to this day, seven years later, eight years, nearly eight years later. Tell know? me about your own singing and having an opportunity to sing at Electric Picnic with the High Hopes Choir. Oh, that was, yeah. We went to Electric Picnic and they were invited down there in uh, 2016, actually. And um, so they invited me to come along and we went along and we sang. Um, there's a place called the Trailer Park. It's for That's people right, who are not yeah. well known at all. They're all, you know. <laughs> it's honestly, where all the it's cool all... stuff happens. Are you crazy? No, I, the ukulele no, bands and it's, it's where everybody who wants to yeah. step away from the madness um, and, and hang out for a while hangs out. Yeah. Don't understand anyway, the Trailer Park. It's one of the best bits. <laughs> Anyway, so we ended up there anyway, and apparently it was the biggest crowd ever that came along to see the um, the High Hopes Choir singing. So it was just an amazing day. I mean, I mean, imagine, and a man called Bart, he's in the book actually, he died recently, well, about two years ago, he was 86, and he sang at Electric Picnic. He blew the crowd away, he sang My Way, he Aww. just got up and David Wolfe said to him, do you want to sing? And he said, yes, I do. And he started singing. It's actually, on, if anybody wants to do, it's actually on YouTube. If you just YouTube Electric Picnic and High Hope Choir, um, it'll come up. And it's absolutely mind-blowing. And to show you how mind-blowing it was, my, my son was in the audience 
and um, he was out in front, you know, and he he saw it from, it's actually in the book, his story about the, his, uh, about what he's experienced is in the book as well. It's it's fantastic. So he came back to me when we were finished, came off the stage and he was crying and I said, my God, Jack, are you okay? What's happened? We said, Mom, I just can't tell you how much that moved me. He was so emotional at, the, at this man singing um, my way and he was 86 years of age and I just, just couldn't get over mm-hmm. the fact that that would happen and so the book in the book you'll read Jack's version of his um, his view of what happened and it's just really interesting he's 26 years of age and to see this man of 86 yeah. you know singing it was just very emotional and that's I suppose in a way the choir was open to any age anybody can take part and they looked after him so well in the choir because he was very feeble, but he was a very popular um, part of it. And uh, just an amazing experience. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, I never thought I'd be doing that in a million years. No, you know, and you tell, like that. yeah, you tell lots of stories in in the book. But tell me yeah. overall, what what's your experience of the power of song, having having been part of the singing, having met and spoken to so many people. I just, I can't, there's no, I, I suppose words in many ways fail me because music is so powerful and it's so uplifting. And um, the choir for the people in the choir, um, it just brings them to a place where they would never, they can go, come in to practice every Wednesday evening and they can leave the troubles outside the door and they're a family and they just learn, they just want to be together and sing. And you know, they're really actually very, very good. And uh, they really, um, they just find so much hope and life through the music. Um, that's what it's about. It's not about being perfect. It's about being together. And some, some very good singers in the choir. But, you know, in a strange way, I was thinking today, my book is, I know it's about a choir in Waterford, mm. but really it could be anyone's story. The stories are so uplifting. It could be a choir in Eglone. It could be a choir in Mullingar. It doesn't have to be actually Waterford. It just happens to be where I, um, I found the choir. So it's just a very inspiring story of hope and light and how music can bring you to a place that you never expect. There's one little thing. One guy said to me one day, he said, Kathy, you know, when we do a concert, the the feeling from the audience stays with me for days afterwards. The affirmation and the applause for somebody who's down, you know, not feeling very well, that for him was just so powerful. And I'll never forget it. And that's what the choir means to those people. And our stories through song is by Kathy McCarthy. And it's available by emailing Kathy. Kathy A. McCarthy at gmail.com or maybe it's easier just to go to waterfordhighhopes.com Now, what stories may you have missed over the last seven days? Well, the Friday panel is next to explore hopefully some of the funnier side as well and heavens above do not use the C word. Uh, Thank you, a very eagle-eared listener pointed out there was an ad for the Three Amigos and it mentioned the C word that was Jimmy so thanks Jimmy we'll put another 20 quid in the jar here and it all goes to heroesaid.ie now let's meet our Friday panel and I have to have to stress the C word is banned banned you know about this Barbara O'Connell I saw it yes. yeah not, not the C word that's permanently banned, by the way. We're talking oh, yeah, about, yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're talking about what's been happening over the last uh, two years, you know, a certain virus and so on. And you see the swear jar? Very good. Yes. Did you bring some moolah? I have some cash. Just in case? <laughs> Never know. Just in yeah. case. Um, 
I should give Barbara a proper introduction, by the way. She's from Dolan's Pharmacy in Tullamore. And how's business at the moment? Uh, fine. Uh, unfortunately, C is still around, very much so for us. Um, so people are still quite sick and just really only sick with the C thing, not anything else. Because people, it would for the last couple of years, there hasn't been flus or colds. Yes, but is there... The virus in town. Is is there some flu very about little, seasonal cold? Little, very little, yeah. All right. Uh, we have other members of the panel uh, waiting to join through the wonders of Zoom, which, being the wonders of Zoom, uh, has managed to go on a go slow. Uh, you had a parent-teacher meeting on Zoom and it was a oh, bit of a... Mighty. Yesterday. Well, only I had the pupil, 13-year-old, there to set me up on it. It was... It was a nightmare. <laughs> you had to go out of each teach. You had to join a Zoom meeting every time, every three minutes for. <laughs> Can you imagine me? <laughs> I hadn't a clue. Well, let's Shocking. welcome our Friday panel on Zoom. Uh, Kyra Fingleton runs Glamping Under the Stars, which is about as far away as you know you can get from Zoom <laughs> and technology and so on. That's the selling point, isn't it, Kyra? Good morning. Good morning, Will. Um, nice to speak to you. Yes, it is absolutely get away from the screens. Um, in fact, one of the bonuses is that we, we live in a rural place and we haven't got brilliant Wi-Fi, but a lot of people who come and stay with us see that as a bonus just to reconnect with each other around the campfire and that kind of thing. Well, the last time we were chatting, you were developing a Hobbit Village, was it? Yes, that's right, yeah. We were building it um, all of last, well... Uh, for about a year before we opened. So we opened it finally in June of last year when, when the restrictions were lifted. And um, yeah, it's been busy ever since, really. People have, it's really captured people's imagination to come and stay somewhere quirky. And they love the little grass-roofed hobbit houses. And we had people who stayed with us last summer booked to come back this summer before they left. So I think uh, there's a lot of love for the Hobbit Village. Well, we were chatting to Pat Bow and his other half in... Uh... Errol the other day and they're creating a beach resort in Leash so quite a unique tourism offering in the O'Moore County Absolutely yeah I, I saw the story actually about that but what a brilliant headline it was the beach in, in the middle of Leash I mean fantastic and I think it really sums up um, Leash tourism you know because it's not a traditionally touristy area we have to work a little bit harder and the people that are doing well in tourism in Leash are those who are really striving for excellence and thinking outside the box a bit. So, you know, good luck to them. I, I think it's brilliant. And what strikes me as well, many listeners were very quick to point out Derry Ounce Lakes near Port Arlington, stunning beach over there. And it's off the beaten track, hidden away from the road. And many people don't know about it. But what started to erupt was the usual debate. Is it in Leash or is it in Offaly? Let's not even open up that can of worms. Our final <laughs> panellist is Tony Henry from Tormey Solicitors in Athlone. How are you, sir? Good. Well, thanks very much for having me. Uh, and uh, we haven't spoken for a while, so it's good to be uh, contributing to your show again. Well, you know not to mention the C word anyway. And you know, yeah, be, being in, in the legal profession, yeah. you're well aware of you know how to get out of certain <laughs> fines and loopholes and stuff. But there's no yeah. loophole on this. If you utter the word, <clears throat> there's a problem. Let's start then into some of the stories from the week. And inflation has been a dominant theme. 
which may be coming to a head in the next couple of days as the government looks at different options to try and give some money back or shave some tax off here and there. It was epitomised when On Post announced an increase in the price of stamp from a euro and ten cent to a euro and twenty five cent, and that kicks in next month. So, Barbara, we'll begin with you. If there was a silver bullet, if there was one announcement that could make a big difference, what do you suppose it would be? To the cost of living mm. for people. God. Because a few listeners earlier had suggested that whether you're a millionaire or whether you're on minimum wage, whether you're on the dole, that is paid at 23% and therefore it's a chunk on anything you buy, no matter how affordable it is. Yeah, God, I, you have me rarely speechless. I can't, there's so many taxes. What annoys me is that it's, there's, you know, it's so many different names for what is just all tax. Um. Yeah, that being reduced significantly. There's VAT on, for example, the other day I was dispensing uh, injections for someone. There's VAT on injections. They're medicine. There should be no VAT on medicines. There's VAT, anything that doesn't go into your mouth, there's mm. VAT on it. Now, I didn't actually know there's VAT on insulin. There you go. Couldn't believe it. Now, you will die if you don't have yes. insulin, if you're diabetic. But because you don't take it orally. Because you don't take it orally. So that's, for me, now, people who have diabetes don't pay for the medicines, but we pay for it. Is there VAT on suppositories? Is there VAT? Yes, there would be. Really? There would be VAT because it goes... The other direction, the yes. The other direction. Uh, it, there is VAT on any cream. So from my point of view, that would make it... That's 23%, right? That's massive. If you're paying for your medication, that'd be a huge thing. That's such a peculiarity, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. That medicine is only something that goes, goes in your into mouth. your mouth, there's no VAT on it. And if it doesn't, there is. Now, there might be an exception to that, but I can't think of it offhand. But I was like... What about toothpaste? Is there a VAT on toothpaste then? I would say so, yes. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And obviously creams and things like that, they'd be considered a, a luxury. All right. Have you got a silver bullet, Kyra? One measure above all others that would make a difference to the cost of living? I, I wish I did. Um, I, I have to say, on the other side of things, you know, the government are talking about giving money back, and and I think that it would work better if they could target that a bit more. You know, the the hundred euro off the um, off the fuel off the electricity bill. I mean, I think that's to me, it seems like nearly nearly a PR stunts and there's people who just don't need that but then there's other people who would benefit far more from a little bit more you know um, I heard somebody else talking on the radio about maybe giving twice or three times as much to people who who are getting the sort of the fuel bill um, in the winter time you know I forget the name of it now but you know just just to try and target it a bit more where it's needed because um, there's a lot of people at 100 euro off the bill just will be lost you know it's it won't mean that much to to a large proportion of of society but there's people in society who really need a bit more help and that it could be targeted in a better way that that's my opinion interesting text here from port arlington willie murphy where the diesel is sold it's 162 a litre so come to port to shop not just for your (laughs) diesel all right fly the flag why not but it does bring up fuel prices tony yeah, I, I think the, the the one thing I would target would be um, uh, excise duty on fuel because as the prices are increasing on fuel um, because of shortages and, and issues around the world, the government are making a lot 
more money on the excise duty because the price is going up. So I think they should um, taper off the increases when fuel hits a certain price or, or, or level because they're still going to get more income uh, because um, you know the, 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 the core price of it is, is too high. And I would agree with Kyra there about um, raising uh, you know fuel allowance for for people who need the fuel during the winter as well. That that would be so. If you if you decrease the, the excise duty on the, the fuel, um, the government don't think would lose out a huge amount because the prices are going up the core price, so they're getting a higher uh, base for taxing. And if you, if you give the fuel allowance, then to uh, increase the fuel allowance. Now we're probably coming into spring now, so that might make a huge difference at this stage, but certainly. For next year, uh, that, that they would be two things that I think should be targeted. If there was yes, a single theme on text and WhatsApp, fuel featured above all others because it filters down into the cost of so many day-to-day yeah. items. It's not just for your commute; it's how the products get to the shelf and ultimately to your fridge. Now, 083 30 10 103 on text and WhatsApp. Become caller of the day and you can enjoy Damien Dempsey in concert in Tullamore later this month. Compliments of Specsavers and you'll find them on Patrick Street now with their new range of frames from Liberty London. Now, the Midlands Today Friday panel. Offaly's favourite station, Midlands 183. The many ways in which alcohol affects your sleep, no matter your age, no matter your gender. There's an article in today's Irish Times about this. And while we have the benefit of a pharmacist in our midst, Barbara O'Connell from Dolan's Pharmacy in Tullamore, uh, it goes into a lot of detail here about REM sleep, that's your really deep sleep, and how alcohol initially knocks you out but you don't reach that deep sleep and then once it metabolises you start getting active in the second half of the night and you don't sleep at all well so um, alcohol and sleep don't mix do you agree or disagree? Absolutely I agree because you fall asleep yourself and then your lovely partner beside you starts snoring and I swear to God that is the biggest risk to my health and my future is that I'm just going to kill him because I have a dog who snores I have a husband who snores and then if there's a few pints on board I swear to God it, it's like someone drilling a hole in your head it just drives me insane who has the pints the dog or the husband well it doesn't matter because they're going in tandem it's a chorus ah. the dog likes now to sleep in the room with us because he's just that's just him and between you've synchronised <laughs> snoring I've synchronised snoring I swear to God and then we have a new pup and she's awake all night. So you just get off to sleep and then you're up with her. What, like what's your solution? Definitely cut out the dogs. Um, I, I'm going to have to get earbuds or something. I don't know. Or you could cut out the husband. Keep the dog. I know, but what happens is, you see, you fall asleep and you're all delighted yourself because you've had a few glasses of wine yourself. And then you wake up and it's like a train. And then beside you, it's shocking. It's just shocking. Your husband's name is Roger? Roger, and the dog is George. <laughs> it gets a bit confusing. We can find Roger in the pharmacy, can't we? You can. So we can slag him about this, yeah, can't we? You can, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Do mention it to Roger next time you're in. <laughs> um, okay, while we're in the subject of embarrassing our other halves, are you going to do so, Tony Henry, or are you going to make a confession? How does alcohol affect your sleep? Well, uh, over the last couple of years, I, I haven't really had a, a, a much of an opportunity to have any alcohol. I don't, I'm not really a home drinker, so that doesn't really uh, 
um, impact me. But the issue of sleep is certainly, uh, from what I've read and heard, is so crucial. And it's probably something, a lot of people talk about exercising and diet, which is obviously very, very important. But a lot of more uh, research is being done on sleep. And I think if you don't get your required uh, level of sleep, it, it does cause um, major problems for people physically and mentally in terms of their uh, health. So I, I tried to get, I tried to get uh, at least eight hours a, a night, but you know, sometimes you, you don't go to bed early enough or you have to get up earlier. So, you know, you won't always get that, but you should, people should try and strive for that in my view. Um, it's always a subject of debate because you'll meet people, especially really driven types, entrepreneurs, and they insist, well, I can manage on six hours or, or four hours in some cases. Um, if you were to try that, could you function, Tony? I, I don't think so. Uh, meet four hours, absolutely no. Uh, if you do that regularly, I think you you would be jeopardizing, you, you know, your, your capabilities to concentrate and focus. Um, so I, I think it, that wouldn't work. But I, I do think that, that when, you, when you do research it a little bit, that there are long-term implications as well. Um, and, you know, um, it, obviously there's just suggestions. I'm not, I'm not uh, I haven't researched it that deeply, but people, people who have early onset dementia or um, Alzheimer's, things like that, maybe that is from, from a lack of sleep over a, a prolonged period of time. We all have situations where we have to get up early or we have to, to, to go to bed later at night and, and they are, you know, unavoidable. But if you do it, regularly i i do think that it affects your personality your ability to focus concentration all those things so um maybe it's 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 uh, appropriate that you've got kyra on as well so people maybe get a, a nice relaxing nice sleep when they go glamping but i think it is something that is crucial and we should be focusing more on it yeah i've heard um we had a, a sleep expert on the program who said the sleep you have every night is like taking out the rubbish from your house it clears the mind. It's part of how the brain washes itself nearly. Not to mention, yeah. especially if you're active, if you're physically fit and training, it's a time for the body to repair itself. Sleep is vital for so many reasons. But again, it seems different people require different amounts. Which category do you fall into, Kyra? Are you a deep sleeper who needs the eight hours or are you able to have a bit here and there? Oh, I'm definitely a deep sleeper. Uh, yeah, I, I think eight hours is is the minimum you need. Certainly, it's the minimum I need. But I would agree that um, some people don't need as much. So I, I think there must be a spectrum of sleep needs um, because my husband's great. He's a, he's a real go-getting kind of guy and uh, very motivated and very busy. But he he has developed the the power nap technique. So you know he he's. Uh, he takes the power nap to the next level. I'd say that man can sleep standing up for a short period of time and be completely refreshed, which is very difficult to keep up to if you're more of an eight hours a night gal, you know? So, so you're suggesting kind of he's a horse a then. Bit, then? You're comparing Sorry? him to a horse then, basically. Horses sleep standing up. Uh, well, um, I don't know about that. I don't know if you enjoy that comparison, but certainly he's... Um, uh, yeah, he's perfected the power nap. I'll, I'll say that for him. <laughs> well, some men would appreciate being compared uh, to a horse, but for very different reasons. We won't even go there. Now, also this week, we learned how the state pension age might not necessarily have to rise higher than 66, at least not in the foreseeable future. And this has been highly debated over 
well, more than 20 years, really, when Charlie McCreevy first created something called the National Pension Reserve Fund, because the population profile is getting older. We'll need greater resources when, instead of having five income taxpayers for every pensioner, by the year 2050, there will be two income taxpayers for every pensioner. And the Oireachtas Committee that examined this has said, no, we don't agree with the Pensions Commission. The age should remain 66. Hmm. Where do you stand on this? I think it should remain at 66. I, it's, it's not just as simple as the pension. You want to have the health to enjoy your retirement. So at 66, you're young and hopefully well. So you want to have some good health, you know, to enjoy it. And if you're still, you know... Working at 60, I would, God, I'd hope I'd be well retired by 66. Um, and I think it's unfair and I think it's moving the goalposts. I'd have a good few employees who are coming up to 66 and they would feel like it's really, now it may not affect them directly, but, you know, it is just moving the goalposts on them. They've already contributed all their lives. One lady in particular has worked since she was 14, you know, mm. and has never been out of work. And she would be very aggrieved by this and I don't blame her. And it just makes me slightly nervous, you know, is, is the money running out? Like, obviously, if you're saying there's only going to be two people to support every one pensioner uh, in whenever, whatever day she gets Yeah, there. although that is disputed because yeah. it's argued as well because people are living longer and are healthier, there are those who may wish to continue working and beyond 66 and contribute, but let's say you're in a more physical job, yeah. labourer, you, you won't to, be able to. That's fine. My dad's 83 and works every day with me. Wow. Yeah. But on the other hand, my he wouldn't like say he's 83 so he retired at I'm back in Ireland 23 years so he retired at about 60 he probably would have officially retired like he retired at 60 but he still works every day do you know what I mean but he probably would have done less earlier because my mum now has dementia so he would have done more with her uh, but you don't that's with hmm. the, the hmm. you know the benefit of hindsight but like I think it's if you want to work fine but I don't think it should be enforced on you. And I certainly would hope to be living the dream here's before the, 66. Here's the <laughs> dilemma, though. And we'll put this to Kyra, that yeah. an economist, if they were in the conversation, they would say, that's fine, keep retiring at 66, but you're going to have to pay more now in your PRSI contribution. So which is the lesser of two evils? I yeah, it's, I, I heard this story on the radio during the week and... Um, it's a tricky one. I think as the discussion has been sort of covered, you know, it depends on the health of the person to some extent and um, the circumstances that they're in. I mean, I'm very fortunate in that my parents-in-law uh, are very much like what Barbara was describing. My father-in-law is also 83 and he's an absolute powerhouse. You know, he's he's incredibly helpful to everyone in the family. He's, he's very helpful here on the glamp site. He'd be mowing the grass and... Uh, you know, sorting out the recycling and all kinds of stuff. And he's he's just, he'd fly at it as well. I hope he's, you have him on good wages. <laughs> uh, well, well, there's certain perks, you know, but it's a, more of a voluntary arrangement. But he's just <laughs> from that generation of just hard work. And as you say, you know, started work very young and has just worked hard all of his life. Um, and, you know, that that's, he's, he's just a fantastic role model. You know, I hope that I, when I'm 83, if I was half the man he is, I'd be delighted. But, um 
you know, some people working in a very physical role or whatever, if your health deteriorates, Barbara touched on Alzheimer's. I mean, there's some things that you just can't plan for, prepare for, and you just don't know where you're going to be when you're getting older. So that pressure to, to work or stay working is quite, um, it's, it's quite a, a, a threat, really, in some ways. If, you, if you've no um, financial supports and you are expected to work well into your 70s <clears throat> or, or longer, depending on life expectancy, that, that is quite a terrifying prospect if, if you find that you have got health problems. Um, so it is a very difficult balance to strike. But I do think that older people have a lot to offer in terms of experience, wisdom and all the rest of it. And that, that sometimes that goes overlooked and that we think of old people as a burden and all that kind of thing. And actually, that, that's not my experience, especially with, I say, my, my uh, parents-in-law are just both of them fantastic examples of what older people can, can still achieve and that that's incredibly valuable um, contributions that they make. It's striking when I look at the texts and the social media comments we get on this, the divide below a certain age where those who are in their 20s and listening to this conversation feel that more of a burden will be placed on them to try and fund pensions when public services will still be needed and all of the other costs to run society will exist. And also that for moving up the career ladder, the longer that those who are more senior, more tenured remain in situ, well, the harder it is to get promotion and, and to climb the ladder if you're 10, 20, 30 years younger. I'm going to throw that hand grenade at you, Tony Henry. How do you feel about that? Well, look, it is so complex. It is so uh, involved. So many people are going to be impacted, whether you're close to pension age or whether you're starting your career um, I, 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 my own personal view, and, and, and I, I, I'm sadly getting closer to retirement age than, than I would like to, uh, but I think that there probably needs to be a movement, um, you know, a, a gradual movement to increase the pension age because we, we are living longer. Um, but there has to be a focus on, uh, people who are in jobs that just, you know, are not conducive to people of, of advanced years doing uh, that be heavy lifting or um, you, you know physical physically challenging jobs and the reason I would say that we should consider uh, changing it is because we simply won't be able to afford it in my view because uh, the the age profile of the country is such that we will have so many people uh, working or so few so uh, uh, far fewer people working and uh, and funding the pension and other services you've referred to will that we simply will have to do that but at the same time we have to give options to people to stay on working and, and contributing to the pension uh, to the tax funds if if they want to um but i i do i do fully appreciate the people who have worked for 40 years uh plus and they're expecting to get a pension i, I think that's very difficult to turn around and tell them no you have to work another year so it's, it's a delicate balancing act. I, I don't envy the people that have to make decisions, but on balance, I would say that the prudent thing to do would be to gradually increase the, the pension age um, because otherwise we just won't be able to afford it. Mm, or what might happen as well is the value of the pension may go down. And if inflation keeps happening, well, it'll happen regardless of what the headline figure is. The value of that money will be less, the buying power of yeah. it at least. 
A story caught your eye, Barbara. Again, I know as a pharmacist, this will set off alarm bells. A cancer charity has welcomed new laws to ban smoking in cars with children. And this applies in Northern Ireland. And I think your reaction was, well, why hasn't that happened already? Yeah, I, I was just so surprised to see that it was only being banned now. Like, you know, passive smoking. I don't know even why it's called passive smoking. Like, why would you smoke in a car with a child? Or why would you smoke in a room with a child? It's just child abuse. I'm an ex-smoker. You feel that strongly? Yeah, I do, yeah. Smoking, the only reason, while we're on the subject of income and everything, in my opinion, the only reason cigarettes aren't banned is because the revenue for the government is so huge from them. That is the only reason they're not banned. They probably make more money than it costs to look after people from all the ill health. And I used to smoke and I would, you know, I, I, I get it. It's really, really hard to give them up. And, you know, you, there are days you would be tempted still. And I'm off them about 20 years. But it's just so bad for you. Like they're just lethal. They are literally mm. cancer sticks. Well, thankfully, smoking rates have gone down a lot in yeah. the last few years. But what's perhaps less clear is how many younger people are vaping. Uh, well, that Can you make a really... uh, maybe peace with vaping? Uh, no, because I would be concerned about what's what's in it. There's no like I'm not allowed to sell. Uh, I, I probably could sell it, but it's not recommended that we sell it. The the stuff, do you know? What do you call it? The liquid stuff. Liquids, yes. Um, the nicotine supplements that you can buy in a pharmacy or any other shop now, they're hugely addictive as well. Like they do help you because they they treat the craving, as does the vape stuff. But you don't, it's completely uncontrolled. You don't know, have any idea what's in it. Now, I probably have loads of vaping people from the lobby saying, oh, you're saying that because you're a pharmacist. But I really, I wouldn't buy my drugs from an unknown source in you know, some yes. pop up shop. I yes. just wouldn't. Just, just to clarify, when you say drugs, that. you're talking about the medicines, yes? Oh, yes, the medicines, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no. God. <laughs> True. My medicines. Another story. I've got to put this one to Kyra. Uh, Midlands 103 reporting earlier this week how it takes just 15 seconds for a house guest to determine if a home is clean or dirty. They asked a thousand people in three quarters uh, admit to judging other people's houses. So they really are hyacinth bouquet. And since you're in the hospitality business, Kyra, I imagine you're hypersensitive to this. Do you believe it takes only 15 seconds to judge if a house is dirty or not? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I think it's that, that old thing about first impressions being the one that stays with you. Um, definitely. I, I think probably, I was surprised it took as long as 15 seconds. Yeah, I'd say say people that is first impression really does count in terms of cleanliness. And as you say, in hospitality, it's a huge um, factor in terms of, of people's impression of, of the glamp sites. And even though it's, it's ostensibly camping, um, people do expect a very high level of, of cleanliness. And it's something that gets mentioned in, say, in our reviews on TripAdvisor and Google and all those. Um, you know, the, the, the bathrooms, especially if the bathrooms are clean, that's that's a big plus. You know, the, the spotless is a word that comes up quite a lot, which is which is good. But it's something that we have to strive for and ensure. And it's it is important. And I think it does color your view of the rest of the experience. If if you think it's not clean, then you're kind of on edge a little bit from then on in. Um, and you're kind of looking for other 
other things that mightn't be quite right either. But um, yeah, I mean, as much as people love to be out in the outdoors and closer to nature, they still want the bathrooms to, to be clean and the bedrooms to be clean. And, you know, it is, I think it's hugely important. Now I can't say, I can't promise that my own house is, is as clean, but um, <laughs> certainly the glamp sites are, are kept to a very high standard, yeah. Yeah, well, our trick at home, well, it used to be the kids have managed to invade the sitting room now, but we were able to keep the hallway, the entrance hallway spotless, and then people would just turn right into the sitting room and that would be clean. But if they ever went oh, yeah. beyond that, I was terrified they'd ask <laughs> to go to the loo, for instance. Yeah, yeah, keep the good room. Mm. <laughs> Although the good room has now been, been tainted as well. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's kids for you, yeah. <laughs> fines for illegal parking are to double from €40 Euro to €80. Euro. That change taking effect from the 1st of February. You're based in the heart of Athlone, Tony. How much of a problem is illegal parking? I don't really know. Uh, I, I pay for my parking uh, every day in a, in a car park and, and uh, take a bit of a stroll to work, which probably is good for my fitness. And um, But I, I think it, it's the most infuriating thing to get a parking ticket. It really does frustrate people. But, I, I, you know, there has to be some funding for the, for the local authority. But I do think there should be some sort of a, a compromise where if somebody's calling in to an uh, to a shop or has an appointment with a uh, say for example a solicitor or a doctor or a nurse, um uh, somebody else accountant that they should be given some leeway i mean um but if you're if you're going to be parking there all day certainly that's that, mm. that's taking up space for 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 um normal commercial business well not to play one suppose... midlands town off another but tullamore has a policy of the first hour is free yeah Something yeah. perhaps Athlone and indeed Mullingar and Port Leash could take a trick from. But then again, you've got a fantastic service, the parking tag in Westmeath and in Leash, which doesn't apply in Offaly for some reason. And you can just top up your parking from your smartphone, which is, yeah. again, very convenient. That's it. Yeah, that, that's a benefit. As regards the fine, all that's going to do is double people's frustration when they actually do get the tickets. That's... Um, I think forty euros is a hefty fee. Eighty is is just uh, you know that's that's a, that's a real uh, um, painful one to take. Let's conclude with some comments. And by the way, Cameron, you might pick caller of the day if you have a second. And they will be enjoying Damien Dempsey in concert in Tullamore this month. Thanks to Specsavers on Patrick Street, specsavers.com. Now, a uh, few people have asked Barbara as she grimaces wondering what's coming. Do you snore yourself by any chance? Of course not, I'm a lady. <laughs> well, ladies don't snore. No, I'm far too delicate for that. I have no idea. Thou sure, poo I, I do not too... stink, etc. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Sure, I wouldn't know, I'd be asleep. <laughs> <laughs> well, a few people have made different suggestions, such as Anne, who says she uses puka tea, P-U-K-A. Oh, I've seen that. And she swears by it really helps her nod off to sleep um, and she's not more tired or drowsy the next morning. Um, then chamomile has been recommended as a nice calming effect on, on the nervous system. Um, calms are calms tablets. They're, yeah, they're valerian. Valerian, yeah. yeah. So no they're natural. getting to sleep. Mm. It's the staying asleep <laughs> is the problem. <laughs> Okay, well, in that case, earplugs. <laughs> earplugs. Earplugs. I think you're right. Definitely. 
All right, thanks to our Friday panel. Kyra Fingleton from Glamping Under the Stars, Tony Henry of Tormey Solicitors in Athlone, Barbara O'Connell from Dolan's Pharmacy in Tullamore. So, caller of the day and the winner of the tickets to see Damien Dempsey in concert shall be announced in just a moment. Gloria McGann is the winner of tickets to Damien Dempsey thanks to Specsavers in Tullamore now stocking a new range of frames from Liberty London and she was making her point about perhaps if the government didn't scrap carbon tax we would scrap the government let the debate continue thank you Cameron for putting it together thank you for listening and remember C word banned today